Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network. This is James Altucher with the James Altucher Show, and I don't even need to introduce you. Tim Ferriss, you've done a billion things. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Really happy to be here. Tim, I have one small beef to pick with you, which I'm, I'm going to bring up. We know each other now. We've known each other for, I guess, about almost a year and a half since uh, a conference like uh, at the end of 2012 or 2011, I forget, one of those years. Mm-hmm. But before that, you released The 4-Hour Body, and Claudia and I were around the corner in the freezing cold waiting to get into that event in downtown New York. <laughs> oh, I'm so Man, sorry. We, we that were was, cold. That was a mess. That was such a mess. So one thing, just a word to the wise for people listening. If you ever hold an event uh, in the winter and uh, it might be a crowded venue, make sure that if they have a mandatory coat check for fire code that they tell you about it beforehand. <laughs> that, is what, that is what held up the line. And, and the poor people waiting outside in you know, normal sort of cocktail party clothing it, it, on the coldest day of the winter in that year. It was horrible. What a disaster that was. I apologize for that. No, no, don't apologize because from every, from every problem, there's a lesson to be learned. And we're, we're obviously, we have a lot of things to talk about, but I learned a couple of things from that. One is you were trying something different with marketing. In general, that's been your approach where not only do you have the event of a book launch, but your your marketing events themselves are newsworthy events. So so you you you've changed marketing for books, you know, for everyone. So and that was part of it. And there's going to be mistakes along the way. That that will happen. But also, you um, dealt with it instantly. So of course you must have gotten many emails the next day. I know Claudia sent you an email, for instance, and <laughs> you you right away made a response. Everybody gets X, Y, and Z. You know, I forgot what it was some some report or something. But you you dealt with it right away, and and it, it proved to be a successful event for you. Also, it made us think, everybody in line think, oh my God, this book is going to be such a massive success. It, we really created this aura of success around the book, even though. We were freezing. It was like the coldest <laughs> I've ever been in my life. It was so cold. Yeah, it was. It was something like ten degrees outside, and there were there were people freezing their asses off. So I, I did learn a lot from that, and thank you for the kind words. Yeah, it was. I will do another event, and it will be in a warmer season too, just <laughs> as a as a safety net. Well, you're you're a good event holder, so so I will hold you to that. Now, sure. um, 
you know, you're you're kind of I've had a lot of guests on the podcast and you've now started your podcast. So, you know what it's like preparing for a, a podcast, reading the materials of, of your guests and so on. But you're a particularly hard guest to prepare for. And I even you know, we've spoken. I know you. I've read all your stuff in the past and I've I read them again in preparation for this, as well as gone over many of your other things. But you've done so many different things, and I've been trying to categorize in one word what you do. And I think most people would say the number four, but I'm not going to say that. <laughs> I think if I were to say one word, your books are really about possibility. Mm -hmm. So on one side, we have the probable so we all grow up with this education thinking, okay, if I go to standard school, standard college, standard graduate school, work a nine to five job, have a family, things will somewhere along the line go well for me and I might find happiness. So we're, we're, we're taught from an early age that this is the probable sequence of events if we want happiness. But you instead talk about possibilities that we might that the average person might not have thought of and that might lead to some version of happiness or, or success or however you define it much more quickly than anybody would have realized. Would you would you kind of um, say that's a, a general theme? Coaches or teachers or friends of friends who have shown me that some of the impossibles are negotiable and that many of the things you might perceive as being impossible are in fact very, very, very achievable. Not only possible, but easily achievable, uh, such uh, as fluency in languages for as, as one example where myths are, are run rampant within the language learning uh, sort of gestalt and people believe things such as, you know, children learn languages faster than adults. False. Uh, you, it takes a lifetime to become fluent in language. False. And you can disprove all of these things relatively easily if you search for the anomalies and the outliers, which is what I do. Well, th that's interesting. Uh, I, and I want to I wanna get back to the language learning and also your phrase, you know, possibility is negotiable. But um, a lot of people ask, how do I find a mentor? And I think this is the wrong question. And you sort of allude to it just then, that... They, these people don't necessarily have the title of, of mentor, but how would, you, how would you define it? How would you answer that question if someone said, how do I find a mentor? The, the way you find a mentor, in my personal experience at least, is by understanding that you should aim to learn before you earn. And that sounds very cliched, but I feel like your objective as a younger person, and I'll just limit the discussion to people sort of in their formative early careers, let's just say uh, 20s, early 30s, that you should aim to surround yourself with the four or five people you want to be the average of. And if you're able to do that, for instance, by joining, a, say, a startup where you report directly to a, a VP or a co-founder, and you get to observe them making deals, negotiating with employees, settling disputes, so on and so forth, you will become the average of those people. And whether that is through explicit teaching or just implicit observation and absorption, uh, I really feel like it's, it's in some cases volunteering. In my case, uh, for example, when I moved to Silicon Valley, this was in 99, 2000, <laughs> just at the apex, the top of the roller coaster. Uh, Good I timing. Was, 
Yeah, good timing. I uh, so I got to I got to agree to to rent that was stratospheric and then wait for my income to crash. But the uh, point I was going to make is I volunteered for startup organizations that held events, and I I took on more and more and more responsibility as a volunteer until they looked to me for leadership roles and invited me to help determine the content of events. And eventually I was able to uh, manage the production of an entire 500-person event where I recruited the speakers. And uh, what did that turn into? Well, it turned into relationships with people I wanted to get to know and that I wanted to have a a relationship with, like Jack Canfield, co-creator of Chicken Soup for the Soul, who many, many years later ended up introducing me to the editor who became my agent who helped me go through 27 rejections and sell the four-hour work week. So, You know, I, I think people don't realize this, but that kind of incremental things like that, like, for instance, you meeting Jack Canfield, like maybe you picked him to be in a conference, maybe you picked him up at the airport to take him to the conference, I don't know. But yep. little incremental things like that compound. And so four hours a week compounds 10 years later into this is the guy who basically helped you create massive bestsellers. Yeah. Oh, definitely. And, you know, I think that uh, Silicon Valley, for all its flaws, uh, is philosophically a very interesting ecosystem to, to study. And what I mean by that is there, there are certain beliefs and belief systems in Silicon Valley among the people who are the best entrepreneurs and investors that are worth emulating. And one of them is you can pass on hundreds and hundreds of fantastic deals and opportunities as long as you as you get a few right, and what the way that what I mean by that is there may be let's say ten to fifteen startups per year that are going to have a series A funding round that will turn into multi billion dollar companies let's just say that hypothetically uh, you don't need to get into all fifteen of those in fact, you can miss all of those deals for many years, and let's just say you have an angel investing career of ten years and you invest in one or two of those you've made your entire career. And the way that that translates to normal non-Silicon Valley life is you don't need to approach every potential mentor you're excited about and immediately hump their leg and start pitching the shit out of yourself. Uh, you can take your time and develop loose ties to these people where you add value where you can. You don't rush it. You don't make 20 email intros a week to play matchmaker. You take it very slow and steady and you know, as Gary Vaynerchuk would say, you don't act like a 19-year-old guy on his first date every time. You just you you play it smooth, and that doesn't mean you're lazy. It means that you kind of you, you spread your bets, and naturally, a handful of those relationships will become real friendships. And you 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 need a basis, in my experience, a basis for friendship and rapport and camaraderie uh, before. Asking for any type of favor makes any sense. And by the way, in my experience, if you develop that type of genuine relationship, the person you would perhaps refer to as your mentor will offer to help you. They will ask how they can help you. You don't have to strong on them at all. You don't even need to introduce the favor itself because they'll, they'll express to you a willingness to help, if that makes sense. Yes. Well, I, I will tell you in every experience I've had, whether I've been starting companies, selling companies, you know, offering services to get customers, whatever it was, it was always from me uh, first soft shoeing it, you know, basically just offering ideas or, or the most smallest of connections that I could make. 
and then uh, spreading it out as, you know, throwing as wide a net as possible and just gradually over months and years, you know, pursuing those connections. And that's always planting the seeds grows, grows the garden. And that strategy has always worked for me. Absolutely. Yeah, you, you need to not – it's possible to be proactive without rushing. And I think that that is a sweet spot that that's, that's uh, a key, people – That's a key phrase. Yeah. People need to practice. Uh, it, and it does take practice. It's a learned skill. Uh, but getting what you want without be, – being proactive without being a hard seller. Uh, and there are times to hard sell, but it's, it's less often than, than one might imagine. You don't so, have so, to be – yeah, I was just going to say like you, there is a time and a place to be Alec Baldwin from Glengarry Glen Ross and you know, always be closing. That's not all the time in my experience. Well, and I think that's less and less now with – you know, because social media allows you to create that wide net without doing the hard sell, which, which didn't occur you know, during Glengarry Glen Ross. Absolutely. Yeah, agreed. Now, you, you mentioned experimentation. I agree that's, that's a very important part of your books, but combined with that is sort of this almost supernatural ability to learn that is kind of emanates through all of your, your books uh, where, you know, you, you have, it's almost like you have this process where you take anything and you're able to kind of break it into its components, observe it, uh, you know, see what components uh, are the 80, 20, you know, which, which 20% of the components give 80% of the value. Then you try, then you experiment, you know, that's when you start the experiment, then you have feedback, then you repeat. And often there's, a mentor in there like in your in your tv show in the first episode you had um you know Stuart copeland in there right. giving you feedback on how you were drumming and also watching him drum allowed you to kind of break apart the components but i i see this sort of cycle uh almost virtuous cycle in all of in all three of your books uh you know you, how do you the, the key though is how do you learn to break apart something into its critical components whatever it is you're trying to learn let's say you're trying to learn poker for instance yeah. So in the case of poker uh, or surfing or investing, for that matter, uh, startup investing, I think that uh, there, there, there's a general framework that I follow, which is, is represented by an acronym DIS. So you have uh, the I is, <laughs> is silent. So it's, it's deconstruction, selection, sequencing, and stakes. And in some of these instances, the stakes, the consequences are built in. So if you're putting money on the line in the case of poker or investing, the stakes are somewhat built in. If you're trying to change your diet, for instance, it's not always quite as clear. You need to build in short-term consequences. But the deconstruction phase is, is, a, pro, is, a, is a step where you, you try to take something that is very large and nebulous like – learn poker and break that down into what it might mean. And it's really an information gathering stage, uh, much like doing uh, notes or a first draft of a book that you later intend to chop down to one third the size. So, and, so you could be wrong at this level. You could be drastically wrong at this level. You, well, there's no wrong or right at this level because you're, you're only gath you're gathering different tools and resources and hypotheses. And the way you go about doing that is principally through, of course, online research. Uh, and uh, I, I use tools like Evernote to pull things offline and to, to, to clip web pages and so on into folders, which I did for poker, in fact, uh, after the fact. I mean, once I was into the learning process. And then secondly, I will interview people. So I, and I, I try whenever possible to find breeds of, of players 
who are dramatically different in their approaches uh, and ideally anomalous within the poker world. So for instance, uh, it, it is widely assumed that you need to be very, very good at probabilities in mathematics, at least basic statistics uh, in in the world of poker. Are, are there people, however, who play on a more instinctual level, uh, who are playing the players as opposed to the probabilities? And, and I, I might seek someone out with that profile. Uh, and on the flip side, I might look for someone who's very, very quantitative. And they might not be a professional player per se. They could be someone like one of the co-founders of uh, Renaissance, which is a hedge fund, uh, but they, or one of these hedge fund managers who plays in, the, uh, in SALT, uh, which is a conference, and goes to, goes to the tables and wins hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions of dollars as non-professional players. How do they take their quantitative apparatus and apply it to poker. So I'll start gathering media stories, uh, Wikipedia entries, so on and so forth, and eventually narrow down a handful of people that I want to interview. And it seems people erroneously uh, assume that you have to be a well, best-selling author or whatever it might be to interview people. Not true at all. There are many easy ways to do it. Number one, you may not be able to interview, say, a gold medalist in the current Olympics because everyone's trying to get a hold of them. But could you find a silver medalist in the same event from two Olympics ago that you could jump on Skype with and use video for an hour and pay perhaps $50 to $100? Probably. It sounds insane, but it's very, very possible. Uh, just And again, just from my own experience, that's definitely true. Like, for instance, I always try to get better at chess. I can't get in touch with the world chess champion, but I can certainly get in touch with someone who won the U.S. chess championship 10 years ago. Is always possible. Oh, absolutely. And uh, so you can either uh, – you can do that for free. You can pay out of pocket or guess what? It's like get – develop a basic level of writing ability or conduct an interview for a media outlet. And it could be a local outlet, the Sacramento Bee, whatever it might be, right? Choose your outlet and, and spec out a Q&A with someone that you want to develop a relationship with. You're offering value in the form of exposure if they want it. And throughout that process, you have, let's say, you know, 12 questions that make it to print. And you ask 20, to eight of which are, are related to trying to deconstruct their skill. And again, take your time. You don't need to then close after that and ask them for free mentorship for life, which is what a lot of people do. They're like, oh, hey, could you be my mentor, i.e. unpaid part-time assistant right. for the rest of my life. No, that's not what you want to ask people to do. So the deconstruction process is really about teasing out leads. It's sort of acting as a detective and looking for people who also are very good at something who shouldn't be, right? So uh, if you're trying to become... What do you mean by shouldn't be? Well, people who lack, apparently lack the attributes of someone uh, who typifies... A, a given skill. So you might look at ultra endurance running where the guys who are the best and the, the women who are the best tend to look like spiders. They tend to be built like, like Jack from the nightmare before Christmas. So what, it, but what if you could find, and I'll actively seek these people out, I'll reach out to say the editors of magazines, writers in the field, whatever. And I'll say, who is good at this? Who shouldn't be? I.e. Is there any, any, are there any people who are massively overweight or who weigh 250 pounds who aren't overweight, just huge muscular people who run ultra endurance marathons like they're they're structurally they shouldn't be able to do it but are there any people and then I'll seek them out and those are people who need to compensate for mediocre attributes with superior technique very often or superior training more intelligent training uh, and those, I find those cases always very very interesting uh, uh, so that, that's almost like 
I would say, the secret ingredient in the soup. You know, I, seeking these people out. I think that's a huge part of it. Uh, another example would be trying to identify, for instance, I mean, successful business people who are severely dyslexic. Uh, and there are quite a, quite a few examples. Uh, Charles Schwab is one, uh, the founder of Kinko's, ironically enough. Uh, and you can go down the line and find people who have overcome apparent handicaps that many other people would view as terminal in these fields uh, and identify what they're doing right. So I would, let's say, uh, I think something that's very underleveraged is the Paralympics, for instance. Like, you want to learn how to swim? Like, study someone who doesn't have legs. Like, what are they doing differently? Seriously, it's like, that is, that is, a, that is just a goldmine, uh, I think, for, for dissecting what is possible and what is not. Uh, and uh, you know, all, people... all right, so like, like in, uh, let's say you wanted to get to be a good surgeon, right? Let's say there was no such thing as medical school and you wanted to be a good surgeon. What yep. type of person would you look for? Well, I would contact anyone tangentially related to surgery, right? Someone, uh, a friend of mine who is a surgeon or who has had surgery, therefore has contact with the surgeon and reach out to people in the field to ask, you know, who in your field is controversial, uh, but very good at what they do. Uh, that, that's another question that I find very helpful. Uh, who is good at this? Who shouldn't be? And I would give them the examples of say, you know, dyslexics or people who were not able to undertake conventional training or people who skipped conventional training in some fashion, like, anyone who's taken a circuitous route. Uh, and usually with those questions alone, I'll be able to get a hold of a lead. And that's all I'm looking for. I'm looking for a scent trail, right? So if I find out there's a controversial doctor, you know, who, who's doing really interesting uh, rehabilitative work, for instance. Um, so tennis elbow, chronic injuries, things that are thought to never go away very oftentimes. You know, who's somebody who's controversial who's working in this field? And... I might find someone who's using, let, let's say, PRP injections, where they pull out your whole blood, spin it in a centrifuge, take out the growth factors, and inject them locally into, uh, say, tennis elbow, which is uh, can be can be very effective. Uh, and that it will sounds be my, like uh, it sounds like a lot of fun. I'm gonna have to install that in my uh, in my house. Yeah, yeah, you can get a home PRP unit. Uh, <laughs> just jab get all my syr- blood out there. <laughs> just jab syringes in your kneecaps while you're sitting on the toilet. Uh, the <laughs> Uh, and that is the, all I'm looking for in that original conversation or email thread is a foot in the door. I want a name. I want a university, a lab, something that will allow me to examine someone who is controversial yet effective or who is very good at something despite handicaps, lack of training, whatever it might be. So that, that would be the first step I would take. Like if we got off the phone uh, right now, I would – send emails to a handful of people I know are either surgeons or have interacted with surgeons. I see. So, and then, and then again, finding that, that person who stands out for something unconventional, like whether they're dyslexic or they had weird training or they shake a little, or maybe they have no arms. That would be an interesting yeah. one. Yeah. Somebody who performs so, surgery without, exactly, without manual dexterity, you know, and there are examples, I'm sure of people who've developed say, uh, a tremor, who who then proceed to address the tremor somehow, right? The, the process of figuring this stuff out, and I just want to, to point out the underlying theme here, is that if you're trying to learn anything uh, the, the, and uh, explore the possibilities, right? What is possible and what is not? 
you have to test assumptions. And the way you test assumptions, the way you test the obvious is by asking seemingly absurd questions. So, you know, how would I win a swimming race without legs? Uh, if I had to run a business in two or four hours a week or my business, whatever that happens to be, I know it's impossible, but what would I do? If I had a gun against my head, if I had terminal cancer and couldn't work for more than, I was having chemotherapy and couldn't work for more than four hours a week, what would I actually do? Asking these constraining, absurd questions. So and, it, it sounds to me like over time, and this is how, this is really where you put in your hours, where you were learning how to ask these impossible questions. Because not everyone says, uh, oh, how can I work a four-hour week? Most people say, well, I have bills to pay. I need to work my nine-to-five job. That was what I was taught all my life. I need to do this. And so people lear don't learn to ask these impossible questions. That's right. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's very often trained out of you. Uh, and I, I would almost say that success in a meager way is like the enemy of possibility. So people find some degree of success. Oh, well, I am paying my bills with a nine-to-five job. So that almost prevents them from looking at what's possible. It, it suddenly be, success be, be, you know, defined for them what was impossible because, oh, I found success. I have a nine-to-five job. Right. Uh, I agree. And I, I think that it's very easy to go from a proactive to protective mindset uh, and it's human nature. I mean, this is this is very much, I think, animal nature. <laughs> you build your nest, you have your mate, you have your territory, and then you just fight people off. That's that's the general programming. And uh, the I, I think that it's very important in modern life. You know, assuming that most people listening to this uh, live in some. Uh, probably have uh, sort of white white collar jobs, although it applies elsewhere, is that when you're – and it, it applies far outside of this. But the definition of risk is very important. Uh, I think that the, one of the, the reasons that so few people do bold things is because they don't define risk at all. Uh, and they, they have a nebulous fear of a worst-case scenario – of having too little money, whatever it might be, but they, they don't define it very very clearly, which is why I encourage people to do this fear setting exercise instead of goal setting, which is you know to define look at the the decision you're considering, the project you're considering pursuing, for instance, uh, that would dramatically change your life, whatever. Maybe you have to quit your nine to five job or whatnot, and you you make a list you, you uh, on a piece of paper. I usually just draw two vertical lines. So I have three columns. First, first category is what are the worst things that could happen in excruciating detail? Like let's get very, very specific, right? So, uh, <laughs> all of the worst things that could happen, however absurd, write those down. If you, if you pursue this second column is what could you do to, to minimize the likelihood of those things happening? And then the last category is if those things happen, what could you do to get back to where you are now? And you run through this exercise and you realize that if you define risk as the likelihood of an irreversible negative outcome, which is how I define it, okay, so the risk is an the likelihood of an irreversible negative outcome, there's very little risk. There's very, very little risk. And this is, this is typically uh, kind of the, the inflection point for a lot of people who are, uh, have a lot of undefined fear. Uh, it, it, it seems like there's a little more more than that in that you can mitigate that left hand column a lot by doing 
kind of these mini experiments like in the four hour body you're you're constantly experimenting on your body but you're not doing it all at once you're doing little experiments here little experiments there uh and and that's how you mitigate the risk for instance of destroying your body with too many experiments at once right right no that's exactly right and it's it's also true with any kind of career shift i think it's easy for human beings to look at choices as uh, dichotomous or mutually exclusive at the very least. So it's, it's either I have a nine to five job or I throw a Hail Mary, I quit my job and stomp out like uh, Edward Norton in Fight Club and all of a sudden I have to fend for myself in the wild world and maybe I can't pay my rent. You don't have to do that. That's silly. Uh, and uh, if you look at, say, uh, I believe his name is Khalid Hosseini, who wrote The Kite Runner, which turned into a huge bestseller in a feature film. Uh, I believe, unless I'm mistaken, that he wrote that while he was still working in a hospital and he would wake up two, three hours early and just chip away at this thing for an hour at a time. Uh, there is a broad spectrum of possibility between binary choice A and binary choice B. And let, uh, let's let's look at that in your specific example because – I always like I I don't know when you were a kid if you remember like there was this comic book series called Secret Origins and it was all about the secret origins of the superheroes and it was one of my favorite comics so let's mm-hmm. let's see your secret origin so you you were running a company um, called Brain Quicken and I I surmise that this is where you developed a lot of the ideas that eventually turned into the four hour work week so. Brain, Brain Quick One was essentially a, a nutraceutical company of sorts that you were doing direct mail or what What, what was that company that you so, were running? Yeah, Brain Quicken was my first real real company, I suppose, if you want to talk about something with any kind of scale <laughs> or organization. I've had a couple of harebrained ideas before that. But, uh, and the company still exists, by the way. I just went to the website. I was thinking yeah. of ordering some medicine. Yeah, it's not it. It's not bad. I actually still use the product. Uh, and I, I developed the product originally for myself while – uh, while an undergrad at Princeton for my own sort of smart drug use because I got nervous about all of the somewhat illicit substances I was importing under the FDA personal importation policy. So it was sort of my, my legal catch-all biochemical aid. But uh, Brain Quicken was a single-skew company, uh, and it, it aimed to define a category. And the category was non-stimulant-based pre-workout products. I, I originally began as a sort of nootropic smart drug company. And I very quickly realized, uh, and I developed this, by the way, uh, with basically selling the hell out of the vision and having people help me for free while I was still employed at a startup I knew was doomed to implode during the startup, you know, the dot bubble and dot crash. So I I did not just leap into the ether and cross my fingers. Uh, I developed the product and the basic manufacturing approach and all this stuff while I still had a job. Uh, I I, I want to just mention that this method of being at one job while developing another, let's say, business on the side is extremely common in, and this is for the listener's benefit really, but for everybody, uh, you know, in Silicon Valley, in New York, anywhere. I I stayed at uh, HBO an entire two years while completely developing my first business totally on the side at night, in the morning, locking myself in the conference room, whenever I could find spare moments. So it's a very common story and it's also how you mitigate risk. Absolutely. Definitely. And I mean, I, and in the beginning, you know, you do have to hustle a little bit uh, and uh, don't be afraid. This is one thing that I've noticed is a lot of 
would-be entrepreneurs are afraid to ask their family and friends to help them. Uh, and in my particular case, I was had very good friends at this company, and I just said, "Hey guys, I know this is going to sound weird, but you know, I've I've bought you booze in the past. Uh, I need you guys to commit to just buying one bottle of this stuff so I can actually afford my first manufacturing run." <laughs> That's great. <laughs> and uh, you know, they're like, "Whatever, fine, okay." And it wasn't a big deal. And I had the web designer at the company. It, it's an easy the- sell. It's an easy sell. You say it's going to make you smarter and your business succeed. Yeah, right. So, to, I, what I realized very quickly when I got out into the wild and started doing testing is that uh, Americans do not want to be smarter <laughs> in general. It's really, really hard to sell uh, an intelligence aid in the U.S. It's brutally hard. And I spent a lot of money on uh, print advertising, radio advertising before I learned that lesson. And the way that I figured out the sort of right turn to make it work was I had a lot of NCAA athletes and professional athletes who would purchase the product try it for some cognitive effect and then ended up getting performance gains uh, in primarily sports that involved reaction speed of some type. So tennis, track and field, et cetera. And uh, it took me a long time to finally basically observe the obvious, which was this is a this has the potential to be a non-stimulant pre-workout product, which is actually, in fact, one of the sort of off-label uses I had, I had implemented myself. And so I repositioned the whole thing for people who are, number one, very price-insensitive athletes, and number two, I, who are very affordable to reach on a sort of cost-per-acquisition basis because I could go after uh, very targeted, specific sports like powerlifting, boxing, MMA at the time, which was very nascent, and in fact, uh, sponsored a number of the UFCs. Uh, if you look at some of the very early UFCs, you'll see Body Quick, which was the reposition product, mm-hmm. or Body Quicken on the turnstiles or the sort of the corner uh, buckles in the UFC, uh, which was on pay per view and everything else. So that that company was built out. It was mostly direct response, but uh, as you probably would imagine, once something is successful in direct response, you start getting wholesale inquiries, and it ended up with distribution in about I'd say twelve to. 20 countries or so. Were you in like uh, GNC or any uh, supermarkets or anything? I was in some supermarkets. It was mostly an independently owned uh, either sports nutrition or uh, uh, vitamin shops of various types. The the, and how long G- did it t- take you to make this transition from brain quick into body quick? And like, when did you about, it, make it the took, switch? It took about six months, I'd say, uh, mm-hmm. six to 12 months to figure it out and to really also just find my feet as an entrepreneur. Uh, the, the disadvantage that I had at the time, which people don't have now, is I was, I literally had a, I had a, an extremely long testing cycle with, say, print advertising and whatnot. I had to wait, wait weeks or months to get sales data to, to determine if something was working or not. You did print advertising work at all? Uh, print actually did work. And I think that many of these avenues that are thought of as very quaint and old-fashioned are uh, fantastic opportunities for the right companies. I think my general approach with customer acquisition is is go where the fewest people are fishing, right? If you can go after inventory that is undervalued because it's out of fashion, you can find some tremendous, tremendous deals. So I, even though it's, it's, it's most expedient to test on, say, Facebook or uh, GlaDWords or, or others, whether it's contextual advertising or, or pay-per-click in other fashions, uh, I think there's tremendous opportunity in offline advertising uh, or radio, for instance. And a number of my startups, like Reputation.com, 
uh, have done tremendously well with direct response advertising uh, off of the web. And uh, so, so anyway, that's that's a longer answer perhaps than was than was uh, intended. But that that that's how the company got up and running, and eventually you know, developed a lot of the automation and productivity hacks, if you want to look at them that way, systems. Uh, out of necessity because I, I got to a point in 2004 and uh, I'm sure you've been there before uh, where uh, I was m- doing really well financially and I was completely miserable. I mean, just utterly miserable and uh, destroying my relationships and a long-term girlfriend at the time broke up with me uh, because all I did was work. Well, what did she say? Did she just like walk out or did she insist on more time from you? She gave me, you know, was, I actually still have this. She gave me what looks like a plaque of sorts, although it's actually one of those photo holders that you could get at Target that have the, the three panes and they fold out to, to, to stay standing on top of a, a mantle or whatnot. And it, had, and it had a, this is incredible, I had a collage made, out, made of a photograph of my head and then a bunch of construction paper, and it was me running with a briefcase with papers flying out of it. And underneath it said, business hours end at 5 p.m. with a question, an exclamation point or three after it. And, uh, you know, then it was love. and very name. creative. It was very creative, but it was, it was effectively, you know, a Dear John letter. Uh, or uh, It was an ultimatum in disguise that I didn't recognize at the time because I was, had my head so far up my ass. And... Uh, she left, and, and honestly, it was it was I was so I, I lacked so much self awareness at the time, and you know I probably still do in some ways that it it came as a complete surprise that she would not want to be in an intimate relationship with someone who worked from like seven a.m. to nine p.m. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, I can see that could be a problem. Yeah, and uh, were, so you, were I, you? I mean, so you you were obviously affected by this. Like, did you try to win her back? Did you say yeah, I'm gonna I cut did. down my hours? No, I I tried to win her back later. Uh, this is, is somewhat <laughs> like tragically amusing. So the uh, so I so I started the the transformation or the reassessment that is sort of the beginning of the four hour work week, which was you know buying this one way ticket to London to. To, to kind of spec out three to four weeks to either redesign the business and extricate myself or shut it down. That was the, that was the objective. And uh, could, you, could you have sold it at this point? Well, well, at that point, probably it wasn't even in my mind as an option. If you want to talk about reality being negotiable and the possibilities and being limited by your own beliefs, I assumed it couldn't be sold. So I didn't even look at that option, uh, which ended up being completely unfounded. And as soon as I started doing a lot of angel investing and advising much, much later, 2007 plus, I realized, holy this doesn't have to be so damn complicated. I can sell this. And I sold the company in 2009, <laughs> uh, which was much easier than I could have possibly imagined. Can you, uh, you tell me, what, 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 in 2009, what did you sell it for? Uh, yeah, I don't talk publicly about the, this, the sales price. It wasn't enough for uh, the time. Uh, we, won't, with we, we won't tell anyone. <laughs> yeah, right. No, it, it, was, it was a decent chunk of change, but not enough to, say, retire on if, if I believed in the concept of retirement. Uh, but it was, it, was a, it was a comfortable chunk of change that, that, ref, that reflected a nice multiple on revenue. Um, there's a longer, there always is, a longer story related to the sales. The sale, well, check this out. So the sale, think about the timing of this. So the, the conversation for the sale started, uh, I'm guessing, early to mid-2008. And I might be screwing up the timing, but a, the, a number of the financiers 
who were, who were putting money into purchasing the company were based in London. All right, so what do we run into now? So we have a pound sterling dollar conversion rate that's very important to this transaction. So what, what else happened in 2008, 2009? Everything yeah, collapsed. It, the whole world collapses and all of a sudden the deal is in jeopardy because they're upside down. The, uh, the, the deal is suddenly 2, 3x more expensive than they anticipated. So uh, we had to do a bunch of really uh, unorthodox stuff, uh, meaning sort of a partial payment at one point with a promissory note contingent upon the certain triggers like the, uh, the exchange rate reaching a certain parity and like all this crazy stuff, uh, which was a great exercise. Like it, it, it ended up panning out, thankfully, but uh, – it's, Were you scared? It, it, I mean, because that sounded like a long uh, – those types of negotiations, for me, I find to be the most stressful. Of course. I was very, it was very stressful. And uh, it, was, it was stressful not entirely for financial reasons. And, and I'm sure there are people listening to this who can understand. This, is, this had become my baby in so many ways. And, I, and it was a baby that I didn't want to spend any more time with. There was that. But – Nonetheless, I had dedicated so many years of my life to building it that I had a, a, an irrational, on some level, attachment to seeing it taken care of. And being caught in this limbo was very, very stressful and uncomfortable did, for me. Did you get like angry at anybody? Like You don't seem like an angry sort of guy. Did you scream at anybody in the middle of this? No, I didn't. I didn't scream at anybody because uh, I, I tend to – and maybe this is odd, but I – with big disaster, I deal with catastrophic circumstances very, very well. Uh, so I, I, I was never in the military, but I always thought I might actually operate well in a sort of high-stress combat environment. Or uh, car, I've been around car accidents. I've seen people just get dismembered in front of me, and I've been able to respond. I've done some EMT training. I'm able to respond really well in disasters. Uh, I don't get angry. Where I get angry is with the really small stuff that I know uh, is a is a result of human beings being idiots or being irresponsible or not delivering things on deadline drive me absolutely insane. And I've I'm trying to get better at that, but I have such a, a an, an extreme level of impatience for people who are competent but behave as if they were incompetent. Uh, it, that's what I get upset about. That's what well, I really well, like. Let, like, very, very, like. Like very talented people who deliver stuff habitually late makes me so f-ing angry. It's 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 disproportionate, perhaps to the to the stimulus. But well, like, what, what do you do? Do you do you yell at them? Do you fire them? What do you do? I, fi- I fire them. I've, I I I don't I I don't yell typically because it doesn't get you anywhere and it just causes more problems. But I get upset. I do get upset. I'm just like, you knew this. You promised this other thing. And yet, here we are with a number of large problems that were created because you didn't do what you said you were going to do. That's unacceptable. Well, let's talk about this on an industry level because you've dealt with several industries that are filled with intelligent, competent people but the industries the, the industries themselves are so fractured and incompetent almost structurally that it's hard not to turn these intelligent people into incompetent people and i'm talking <laughs> about both publishing and television so right. you know so so brain quicken <laughs> 
kind of you 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 experimented on yourself you developed uh you know all of the techniques in the four hour work week which i you know i'm sure everyone's read it but I, if you haven't i really encourage people to read it because it's incredibly useful for creating a four hour work week which you successfully essentially turned brain quicken into for you it was it be, that that was your four hour work week job and yeah, then, well, just a, just a quick funny side note on that. Of all the titles we were considering for the book, so the original uh, – one of the original sort of 12 titles or so was the two-hour work week. And uh, my publisher thought that was too unrealistic. So we settled on testing the four-hour work week. Yeah, you know, <laughs> somebody once asked me what uh, – or no, I might have written about this once. I said you would have – I was just guessing. I said you probably would have called it – the zero hour work week, if you could, but that wouldn't have been realistic. So you, you, through testing, I know you figured out four was like the right number. <laughs> so because you, know, you know people don't want to work. Like people well, want a zero hour work week. Well, the other thing is that I was in two thousand five spending two hours, literally two hours a week, managing all brain quick and related stuff, and and it uh, anyway. The whole that's a whole separate conversation on 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 testing titles and whatnot, but. Um, but, but by you, the but way, were, yeah. by, by the way, I did your testing technique for Choose Yourself because awesome. my initial title uh, was the Choose Yourself Era, and I had this weird problem where I couldn't say the word era. It sounded like <laughs> error, or, or it sounded like you know one editor said, "Is this a book about anthropology?" So, so um, speaking of Tucker Max, he said, "Why don't you test it against Pick Yourself?" And I didn't really like pick yourself either because like pick your nose. So I said, okay, let's just do Tim Ferriss's technique. So we did choose yourself, pick yourself, the choose yourself era, and then like 10 other titles. And then we did the same thing with subtitles. And that's how we came up with the title and the subtitle. So thank you for the idea. Of course. Yeah. It's a, uh, you know, it's, it's great to trust your gut, but you should verify with numbers. <laughs> I don't, I don't trust my gut at all. You know, I'm a former, uh, day trader by profession and I ran a hedge fund and I quickly learned my gut is filled with all sorts of toxic bacteria and I totally needed to rely only on software. So I, I didn't trust <laughs> my gut at all. My gut was always wrong. But I, I, I took you off course. You were talking about publishing TV where otherwise very competent people sometimes are cornered or put into a position where they, they can't do their best work, to put it. Right, because we, we both know way. very smart people in, in publishing. And it's not their fault, so I don't want to blame anybody. But you know, one thing about you is that you reinvent yourself quite a bit. So you say, you say Brain Quicken was your baby, but at some point you decided, you know what, I'm also going to, not only am I going to sell these nutraceuticals, but heck, I've never done it before, I'm going to write a book. And you went ahead and did it, like from you know why you're running brain quick, and why did you decide you're gonna that everybody in the world needs to hear what you have to say about this? You have to have a certain ego to write a book. Uh, well, I wish I could take credit for it. Honestly, I was a reluctant writer. Uh, my senior thesis during my during undergrad almost killed me, and uh, I actually took a year off away from school, partially just to work on this thing because I was convinced I wouldn't ever finish it. And I vowed to myself after graduating that I would never write anything longer than an email ever again, uh, which clearly has not panned out. But the way the book came, came together was, uh, number one, I mean, I'm a compulsive note taker. So hypergraphia, maybe, if you want to give it a diagnosis. I've, I have dozens and dozens of notebooks. 
I, I just I take notes all the time. I record notes, and I, it's very, very, very hard to find me at any time, anywhere, without a pen or, or something to write with handy. Uh, and I collected all of my notes on these learnings and tactics and different tests and so on as I was uh, streamlining uh, Brain Quicken and removing myself from it as a bottleneck and putting systems in place. So I had all these notes simultaneously. Uh, beginning in, I want to say 2003 or so. So keeping in mind that I started the company, I guess, 2000, 2001. Starting in 2003, one of my former professors, a great guy named Ed Shaw, Z-S-C-H-A-U, who'd been a congressman, a competitive figure skater, uh, had taken At companies public. At the same public. time, no yeah, less. He, I, he, I'm not kidding. This guy is, is uh, he is, you know, the world's most interesting man. Uh, he taught a class that I took called High Tech Entrepreneurship. And in, starting in 2003, I believe, he invited me to come back uh, once or twice a year to talk about self-funding or bootstrapping as opposed to venture backing. And I was going to these classes and I had to come up with content. So I started testing a lot of the material that would later become parts of the book, The 4-Hour Workweek. But I never had any intention to write the book. After all of these classes, I would send uh, email feedback forms. I wanted to get feedback. You know, how could I improve it? What did you like most? What did you like least? Etc. Uh, again, just to teach the class more effectively next time. And at one point, one of the students, this is Princeton, you got to keep in mind, there are a lot of snarky people there and a lot of pompous people there. And I'm sure I was probably a bit of both when I was there and maybe afterwards. But the point being, a student gave some feedback in the other comments or any additional comments, which was, I don't understand why you're teaching a class of 50 students. Why don't you just write a book and be done with it? And I don't think that was actually a serious recommendation. It <laughs> almost it was, sounds like uh, a little bit of an FU there. I think it actually probably was. And nonetheless, it planted this seed. And I had no desire to write a book, but I was up late last night, uh, late, not last night, but one night, and this is probably 2004, 2005, and I sent, uh, I started looking at books and book proposals and book publishing. I was like, you know what, I have a couple hours to kill. Let me just have a glass of wine and for and giggles, I'm going to check this out. So I started messing around with it and looking back at my notes and I, just coming up with book titles. I like headlines. You know, I did direct response for years. I'm like, you know what? Let me just, like, what would chapter headlines? Oh, this is really funny. Ha, ha, ha. Probably a little drunk at this point. Like, what would I call the book? Blah, blah, blah. Very, very uh, much just an exercise in fun. It wasn't intended to be anything. And then at, at one point, I sent Jack Canfield a note. And uh, we had had this very intermittent sort of philosophical exchange. I would contact him for asking him for very real advice and some, like, life decision or philosophical decision that I needed to make. It was very seldom something super specific or an introduction or whatever. And I, I, I asked him one of these, these questions. And then at the end of the email, I was like, Hey, you know, this student recommended I write a book about blah, blah, blah. I mocked up a cover and a back cover. Pretty hilarious. What do you think? And, uh, pretty much right out of the, right out of the gate, he said, well, you should totally do it. I could see it on Fox and friends. I, you, sh- you know, you should talk to is this person, this person, this person. <laughs> and before I knew it, you know, the cat was kind of out of the bag, if that's even an expression. I don't know. It sounds right. Uh, and he'd made introductions to a couple of potential agents, um, all of whom said no, a number of, uh, uh, of which gave Why me good advice. No. Uh, well, I wasn't even trying to sell the thing, but they were like, uh, I, I, what were some of the reasons? Uh, 
This doesn't fit into a clean category. I don't know where this would be slotted. This isn't what publishers are looking for. All the same, all the same kind of routine lines that you hear in both publishing and television and movies, right? It's just the same stuff. Right. Uh, and uh, a number of them gave me good advice, even though they said no, which I appreciated. Like saying no is fine. But I do appreciate some parting advice, which a number of them gave me. And then I ended up signing with Steve Hanselman, who was just becoming an agent at that time and had been a superstar editor and had acquired a bunch of really fantastic books in his previous career as an editor, uh, like You, The Owner's Manual, and a bunch of really big, big winners. Uh, so that's how the whole thing got started. I was never intending to write the book. There was no courage on my part in jumping into the deep end that way, I was sort of goaded and not goaded, but it's like spurred along and very inadvertently ended up trying to sell a book. <laughs> and, and, and at this point, did you have the title uh, or had you done that testing yet? No, I hadn't done the testing yet. The title, this is probably another reason I was turned down. I had a, I had a horrible original title. Oh my God. And I'm so glad <laughs> it didn't pan out. It was called lifestyle hustling. I mean, just like the worst imaginable title for me. I, I, I came up with far worse titles to test later, but yeah, there was like uh, the drug dealing one, drug dealing for fun and profit, drug dealing. Oh, so it was lifestyle hustling at the very beginning at the proposal stage. And then I think when it got sold, it had drug dealing for fun and profit, which is problematic on many levels, but I, I still like that title. I actually, I still like that title. I still think I could have made it work, but it wouldn't have spread as far and wide as the four hour work week. Oh my God! So how can how can you and I'm I, I'm interrupting the flow of this, but how can you now do something that has that title in whatever <laughs> form? Like what can you do? Like a podcast with that title, or I, I probably a, a supplementary could. report. Uh, yeah, I mean, I could do a sup. I could do a a, a nutraceutical a new nutraceutical line. <laughs> it's just yeah. called drug dealing for fun and profit. Just so yeah. Oh, you me. know, seriously, actually, like right now, here's where you can buy the ingredients. Here's how you can package them. Here's how I would use Google ads or Facebook ads or ClickBank to uh, to put together an info product and sell it. Like here's how from scratch, you know, brain quicken in a box, drug dealing, <laughs> drug I've dealing a, for fun and profit. I've had a lot of people ask me for that. The liability is just so off the charts. I was like, yeah, there's no way, man. You're kind of on your own. I'm sorry. <laughs> No, 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 no. I love, I love brainstorming, but I, I'd say since I've also talked about that title so much, I'd be amazed if, if there aren't a hundred squatters all over it at this point. Yeah. Um, so on to the next thing. Okay. So you did the book, you sold it, it became a bestseller. And then for our body, I, I feel like you're getting, you're starting to figure out what your core message is, which is really, again, not necessarily about, you know, four hour work weeks, or losing a lot of weight, which you cover in the four hour body, among other things, or, you know, learning how to learn what you cover in the four hour chef. But again, it's this idea that uh, uh, let's let's question the impossible. And is it really impossible? And if not, how can we get through it? And it seems like you start you get closer and closer to that core message. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Because the four hour body, I could have very easily done the four hour work week, you know, part two or whatever. And that would have been the layup and the, the easier right. path. But I really did not – by that point, and this is I'd say 2008 or so, 2009, when I'm starting to think about perhaps another set of subject matter. And 
I, I, I was so sick of talking about email autoresponders and so on ad nauseum in every interview that uh, I, wa- I, I wanted to take a, com- a complete lateral move and do something entirely, entirely aside from business. So you and wrote that, a book about orgasms. So I wrote a book including two chapters on female orgasm, uh, which got the book uh, pulled out of Costco as a side note. But the uh, the, uh, the the Four Hour Body was really represented an obsession of mine that predated the Four Hour Workweek stuff by ten plus years. So it was very appropriate. The question was, and you know, even after the Four Hour Workweek, right? This is a book that sold into 40 plus languages, you know, millions of copies or whatever. Uh, it was a hard sell to, to make the four hour body work with retailers and everything. I'm like, well, like we know what you did in business, but Hey man, like that's not even the same category. This thing is going to fail. You know that the book is going to be too big. You know that fitness and health and all that, they don't sell internationally. You can't sell those. You can, they don't translate well on and on and on. And, um, I'm not saying that was feedback from the publisher. This is feedback from, in some cases, successful authors who literally would like spit up their drinks and be like, what? It's how long? It's a hardcover. It's what? Like that's never going to sell. They never slot those in blah, blah, blah. Never, never, never impossible, impossible, impossible. It's like, have you tested these things? What evidence do you have for that? Oh, really? That's interesting. Like what data have you seen? What, what evidence do you have for that? And what data did you see? Well, no, I would ask them this, and they would, they would just be a blank stare. They, they would be like, no, well, everybody knows that. And it's like, really? But how do they know that? Like, because they repeat it so often, they believe it to be true, and that's typically the answer. So, um, yeah, the four-hour body ended up outselling the four-hour work week by a large margin and by, for a long period of time, and it might still even be outselling the four-hour work week. That's uh, really interesting. I, I did not know that coming into this, that the four-hour body had out... So how many, how many copies did the four-hour work week sell? Oh, boy. You know, I'd have to check on numbers. I used to be on top of this on, like, a weekly basis. Four-hour work week... Roughly. I mean, it's in the it's it's got to be in the millions, but I don't I don't even know. Uh, I couldn't even begin to tell you what the what the exact numbers are. Because um, I feel, I feel like with the four hour work week, you were really touching into something that was impactful in a historical way, in the sense that you know what we saw in two thousand eight two thousand nine was the death of corporatism. This idea that if you're loyal to your nine to five job, the corporation is going to be loyal to you. So that whole connection that you know had essentially replaced the family connection a, a hundred years ago was now dying so people actually needed to figure out how to work a four-hour work week uh and so so i felt you know in terms of societal impact that was a very powerful book and it triggered a a, a huge revolution in, in thinking about essentially work um so so the four-hour body is great it just surprised me it sold more than the four-hour work week uh not in total at this point, um, keeping in mind that the four-hour work week had a head start uh, by many years, you know, three right. years, and then there was the revised edition, the expanded and updated edition of the four-hour work week, which was full of case studies. Um, which I'm thinking of actually, I'm thinking I'm doing a completely separate book uh, just of case studies, which I think would be just amazing. Uh, you totally should because the world has changed too. Like now, yeah. you really can create a four-hour business. You know that it's so easy now. It's so easy. It's and easy it's, and it's different than it was ten years it's ago. Totally different. I mean, now don't get me wrong. I think the principles, uh, even the tools in the Four Hour Work Week, especially the expanded and updated edition, still work. But there are other tools and other approaches. I mean, for instance, I've helped a number of companies and people with Kickstarter campaigns, and these are these are companies that are now doing, in some cases, you know, five hundred thousand dollars a month or a million dollars a month in sales. 
Kickstarter just didn't exist. And similar options, whether it's you know, Indiegogo or uh, using things like Celery to, to do pre-order campaigns where you're not charging credit cards but doing it in an organized legal fashion. Uh, not only that, but the, 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 scope, the scope of businesses that can be created by using the f- flexible principles in the four-hour work week, you know, 80-20 Parkinson's, a lot of the systems thinking – is so far ranging. Uh, people think company, they think product. It's like, wait, 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 wait. I know actors who have used this for their careers. I know lawyers who have used this. I know designers who have used this. I know YouTube stars who have used this. I mean, it's it's so far reaching. And so to to show people the spectrum of all of those options, I think would be really fun. Yeah, um, well, it's interesting because the four hour work week. You're right. Every principle and like the eighty twenty rule you refer to, you know, throughout your books and throughout a lot. Lot of different things all all of these rules and principles though are incredibly valuable but right now in particular it's like taking those and you can almost make like a four-hour pedia of all the different types of businesses that can be started and and exactly how like plug and play exactly how people can do it and i think Definitely. that would be an incredible idea yeah no i agree i agree so you fantasize about doing four-hour work week. What would you even call it? You can't call it the eight-hour work week. Well, you have to come yeah. up with a really good title here. Yeah, I'm going to come up with a good title, but uh, let's call it... Uh, <laughs> no, I wouldn't call it anything. I'll tell you, because people... Here's another sort of publishing tip that, that people might find helpful. If you have an audience or you're being watched for what you're going to do next, uh, you should get into the habit, in my opinion, of using red herrings in some cases. So after the four-hour work week, I became very acutely aware of how painful it can be to have people squat on uh, your intellectual property or infringe on your intellectual property and use your photographs and use your trademarks to sell stuff that you have no association with. In fact, many things that could be very damaging to you. Uh, And that's that's been an ongoing battle. So typically, for instance, when I published the four-hour body, prior to that, I, I put up a post announcing what the new project was going to be and uh, because I wanted to marshal resources and find interviewees and so on. But I didn't use the real title because I knew that people would immediately go to Twitter. They would immediately go to Instagram, had it existed at the time, uh, and grab handles and grab URLs to try to squat on them to extort money from me later uh, or to simply uh, attract traffic from searches at a later point in time so they can monetize it with advertising. There's just a lot of, in my opinion, unethical behavior that is automatic. It's, it's triggered in hundreds and thousands of people uh, when you give people advance notice uh, about what you're going to do if you haven't already secured every possible imaginable permutation. And to save myself that labor, when I announced it, I called it, I think, becoming superhuman or something like that because I wanted to provide them with fodder as a false lead. And well, so once you put out four hour body, did you did did suddenly everybody start registering the four hour investor, the four hour I don't know, president. I, I don't know all the different yeah, permutations I, there. Yeah, I mean they have. Uh, I mean people have 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 tried that and done that. I mean ultimately I've the, the I've registered trademarks for four hour as a prefix. So, I mean, there, there, there is going to have to be, and there is some ongoing stuff that I won't bore you with, but I hate that it comes down to this, but it's like, there is going to be a legal reckoning for 
almost all of these people. Uh, it's well, just, yeah. I mean, it's like you, it's, there, are, there are fights worth fighting and then there are fights not worth fighting, but there are also battles you have to fight to maintain your intellectual property rights, unfortunately. So, man, I, I almost feel like uh, registering the three and a half hour work week right now. Uh, you, you know, you can go for it. <laughs> But I'll get. I'll give it to you for free if you go. I, for that. I, I appreciate that. Yeah. The you know. I, I would just say this, guys. It's like you can ride on someone else's coattails. It's intellectually la- lazy, and I find unethical. It's like try to create something of value. If you leave this planet without creating something original of value, I view that life as having being wasted and squandered. Uh, along the same lines, I mean, we we all have critics. Uh, is Focus on the people who get it, not the people who don't get it. And uh, if you're trying to decide sort of which side of the fence uh, to fall on as a supporter or detractor, uh, just you know, watch Ratatouille and listen to the Anton Ego speech at the end, which is the, the, the final review of Gusto's restaurant. But basically he says you know, the, the piece of work that we critics designate as garbage is worth less than what we're designating as garbage. And uh, y- you can either focus on building something of value or propagating other things of value that you find, uh, therefore sort of increasing the karmic value you add to the universe, or you can nip at people's heels and sort of spread vitriol and spit acid, which net-net really does no good for anyone. And I no, think that... And, and I highly recommend, you, you wrote a post on this once, which I've referred to because it's, it's at some point it gets painful for anybody who's trying to put themselves out there and they start to get just criticisms that are are riding those coattails they're, they're criticizing for no other reason than riding the coattails and you wrote a very good post uh a few years ago about dealing with the haters that i thought was very good yeah how to deal with haters and it pulls from uh say quotes from you know colin powell and some of the stoics and some of the top sports agents in the world uh, just to to point out that you know if you're doing everything right if you're doing your job well 90% of what's said about you will have some negative tinge to it. I mean, it sounds unbelievable and, and outrageous, and that's just the nature of anonymity and the internet. And uh, to contend with that, you have to arm yourself philosophically and tact, tact, uh, tactfully, I guess, <laughs> tactically, there we go, uh, to contend with that type of landscape. It's very, very tough, and it's uh, there are times when the turkeys get you down, and it's it's very tempting. Some will, to, be, some will yeah. be lucky. Some will hit the right buttons that were in you from birth, or you know from whatever, and they'll just get lucky. If, if a thousand people criticize you, and you're looking at all of them, one of those thousand is going to seem like your mother yelling at you, and that's going to be painful. Yeah, it'll trigger something. So, I mean, the the I think the post is just how to deal with haters or seven principles on how to deal with haters, something like that. If you, if you search on Google, it'll pop right up, just my name and how to deal with haters. Uh, and it's, it's, just a, it's, a, it's a pragmatic toolkit for people who want to create value but who are not going to be Pollyanna-ish about it and recognize you're going to have, for every supporter you have, you're going to have someone in the opposite camp who's charging at you, who just like verbally and emotionally wants to put you on a spear. And that's just well, the, you have to get accustomed to that. Even if you're a nonprofit, for God's sake, I mean, it's like you see some unbelievable stuff. Well, and you had, you had the common, almost, almost the elephant in the room was 
uh, oh, Tim Ferriss doesn't really work four hours. He's the hardest working guy I know. So people, I would see that criticism of you, which is oddly a criticism that you didn't work four hours, even though that's not really what your book's about. Your book is about putting these systems in place. So if you have a business like BrainQuick and you can have 36 hours to do things you enjoy or 38 yeah. hours or whatever. Yeah, no, exactly. And then I think that I very... First of all, I don't go looking for the negative stuff, and there's plenty of positive stuff too. Uh, I don't go looking for the negative. I think that's a bad habit. Uh, I very rarely respond to the negative, particularly if it reflects someone who hasn't done even a modicum of research. If they haven't read the book and they're criticizing me based off of the title, there's really no nothing to be talked about uh, because you're not going. By to the way, I, I, oh, I was just going to say. I was just going to say a general principle in life. I think is that you you can't reason someone out of a position they didn't reason themselves into. Does that make sense? It's a waste of breath. It's a waste of time. Uh, I, and- I, I totally agree. And one thing I will add to that is what I call the 24-hour rule, which is that if you do respond to the haters like that, then you've kept the issue alive for another 24 hours instead of just letting it die. Yeah, starving it of oxygen. Also for just very specific uh, search engine rules, you do not want to add Google juice to something by drawing attention to it. And uh, and there are many people who will write really hateful, ridiculous kind of uh, articles about me that are devoid of content just because they want me to respond and send traffic to their sites. And uh, I, just, I just never respond to those things. And they end up attracting people who are hateful to their sites, which is their own form of punishment. Like that audience is going to turn on you <laughs> at the very yeah, least. that's a very good point, actually. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so that... Uh, what I was going to say, though, just very quickly, for those people that haven't heard the 4-Hour Workweek, the reason that 4-Hour Workweek has been uh, you know, praised by hedge fund managers, some of the top venture capitalists uh, in the world very publicly, I mean, in the New York Times, and these types of people, not because they want to work four hours a week, but because they want to maximize their per-hour output. That is the point of the book. You maximize your per-hour output, and then what you choose to do with that new toolkit is up to you. And in my case, like, I don't want to sit around and stare at the wall watching paint dry for the rest of my life. So I have the luxury at this point of doing with my time whatever I want to do with my time. And I choose things like writing on the blog. I love doing it. I love interacting with my audience. Or, uh, you know, I spent a ton of time on, on experimenting and trying to capture that for people because I view myself as a teacher, first and foremost. I always wanted to teach. I thought it was going to be ninth or 10th grade, but instead it ended up being via books in the blog. So, uh, so let's talk about that because you've, you've also said often writing and, and, this, a lot of authors say this actually. Writing a book is a very unpleasant experience. Like, so you're used to going out there and doing things in the world, and when you write a book, you have to essentially spend a year or two or more sitting behind a computer for hours a day, doing you know just doing brain activity into this computer. It's painful. Yeah, it is painful. It's a very isolating. It's a very isolating process. I mean, I, I, for me, it's it's like being in solitary confinement, and it's not always unpleasant. There are rare moments where you hit some type of you you bottle the lightning, and you have just a streak of a few hours where you're really on fire, and you're putting together some of your best stuff, and it's funny, and you're making yourself laugh. And I love those moments, but they do not 
they do not constitute the majority of the time spent writing. <laughs> I mean, you know, you have you have particularly with your books. Like your your books are almost like they're they're packaged books. Like four hour four hour chef is a work of art. Like it's just a beautiful Thank book you. all around. Like with what is there seven or eight hundred photos in there? How many there, photos were in the four uh, hour chef? I think I think there are a thousand plus photographs. Uh, I did. I, I actually just to be a glutton for punishment. Probably took twenty to thirty percent of those myself. Uh, probably twenty eh, percent just to try to learn photography, which was, in retrospect, kind of a foolish masochistic decision. I had fun, but it was too much additional work. The uh, and it has a few hundred illustrations. So that book, part of the point of that book for me was to create a beautiful physical object, uh, which, which, not surprisingly, is very challenging to do. Uh, it's a yeah. lot, it's really involved. But uh, the, the act of writing I find painful I, most of the time. Uh, there are the moments where you – because as a writer, if you're a solo writer, if, you're, if you don't have a co-author, there are times when you are the architect where you're designing the cathedral and it's, it's this really inspiring, exciting period. Uh, the vast majority of the time, you're the bricklayer. <laughs> And that is really tough grunt work. Uh, and then there's, of course, at the end, you can look upon this hopefully beautiful structure that's highly functional and admire it for, you know, look back with pride on it for, for years and decades, ideally. But it's a, very, it's a very tough process. Now, what I would say is you don't necessarily choose or I don't necessarily choose my projects based on the ratio of pleasure to pain. This might sound weird, but... I think there's value from going through pain and I voluntarily introduce pain to my life in the form of unpleasant workouts uh, or meditating when I, when I really don't want to meditate, when it's the last thing I want to do. That's when I most need to meditate. And I remember I was told once, you know, if you don't have 30 minutes to meditate, you need three hours. And <laughs> uh, Yeah, that's, uh, that's similar to a quote from Gandhi actually. So Gandhi told all of his advisors – uh, I need an hour a day to meditate. And his advisor said, you know, no, Gandhi, you, you don't have an hour. And then Gandhi said to them, uh, okay, now I need two hours to meditate. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So if, if uh, it, the way that relates to writing is I, I enjoy expanding my sphere of comfortable action. And you only do that by subjecting yourself to discomfort and pain and challenging situations. Uh, and I think there's a real danger when you, when you have even the barest level of success. Like you said, when you have a nine-to-five job and there's the risk of becoming comfortable and complacent, that is a very dangerous place. It's a really dangerous place to sit. And I, I, think I, wonder, I wonder if that's what got you out of the, let's call it the four-hour genre. Like you, you went from four-hour chef to essentially doing a TV show. Yeah, which, yeah, which that, by the way isn't called the Four Hour TV Show. No, it's not, and it's it's called Tim Ferriss Experiment. And I'll and actually the latest update on that, we can talk about all sorts of aspects of this. But I'm really happy that I started the podcast in the last few weeks, which I'd been hoping to do for more than a year, probably two years. And thank you for a lot of your advice related to the podcast, by the way. Uh, is the the because of some internal issues at Turner Broadcasting, the, the launch of the TV show has yet again been delayed and postponed, 
uh, with no particular sort of launch date uh, in its place. So it's I, been. I know I've been very upset because I wanted to. Wa- I only was able to see the Stuart Copeland episode. I wanted to see the poker episode. Actually, the poker uh, episode is awesome. Uh, I am working tirelessly. So any of you who who were kind enough to offer support with the show in any way, I am fighting my ass off. Uh, the, the Turner people and I want a lot of the same things. It's really just a matter of figuring out how to allocate resources and just there, I won't bore you with all the internal sort of stuff that, that uh, all the people on the, uh, the Turner team who want to see the show get out in the open as well. Um, Big companies are hard. Big companies are just very challenging, not only if you're dealing, uh, you know, interacting with them from the outside, and they're very resource rich. Uh, resource rich. There are reasons to work with big companies, but they're, they're very challenging political animals. And so so let, let me give you an idea. Let me give you an idea to do. Because like, if, you, if, you, if you end up on you know, headline news or true TV or any of these kind of like uh, channels, on, you know, channel 187 on cable, you're going to have 10,000 viewers. So right. what, what what you should do? You have a huge blog. Just tell them you'll sell uh, for five bucks an episode. Do a Louis C.K. sell for five bucks an episode every episode. I'm a buyer. Everybody I know is going to be a buyer. All your readers are going to be buyers. That's how they're going to make their money on this. Yeah, I'm working on it. I'm working on it. So I'll figure out a way to. I am. I'm, I'm really working hard to figure out a way to make it work. So I'm. Uh, I remain confident. Um, and, and part of the reason I remain confident, I'll tell you, is when, when people come to me to ask about books, 90% of the time, if not more, the questions are all related to marketing and PR. And I don't, uh, I don't want people to discount the value of those things, but the marketing and PR potential is decided by the product. And I spent so much freaking time on this show and these episodes and the teachers and the lessons and the tools and all this stuff. I don't, I know that, I know it can find a home. I know the product can speak for itself. That's why I'm not freaking out completely. Uh, and I, I feel like with books, for instance, or any type of content, you have to focus on the content first and foremost, especially in a world that has social media available as these Archimedes levers and rebroadcast platforms. If you have a really good product and you can pick your thousand first fans properly and target them, and everybody should read 1,000 True Fans by Kevin Kelly. Uh, not everyone agrees with it. I happen to think it's genius. Uh, it's a very short piece. It's the only thing I think you probably ever need to read about marketing if, you're, if you had to pick one thing. You, you can have an v- enormously successful product. And this goes for blog posts as well. I mean, one good blog post, I'd love to hear your thoughts because I know for my blog at least, there have been a handful of posts that made the blog. I mean, they just, like, I put the time or the emotion or whatever into the posts, and literally one blog post can change your life completely. I really strongly believe that. That's very true, and it, but it's a little bit of the eighty twenty rule. So, like twenty percent of your posts will will get you know eighty or ninety percent of the traffic to your blog. It's hard to know sometimes in advance. Like I I love writing, for instance, my very personal stories, uh, and I think that's my best writing. Um, but that, that's not necessarily the most popular post. So I I write for 
so I can get this kind of creative outlet, but also then I write these other posts that I know have a lot of value and, and will get a lot of traffic and so on. No, agreed. Agreed. And I think that uh, I'm going to be uh, writing a post soon about blogging and the lessons that I've learned um, because I've now just crossed the 500 post barrier, which kind of blew my mind. And what I've realized, I was looking at questions that people wanted me to answer in this, in this post, this sort of recap of the last many years blogging, and I realized you don't always write for other people. You should, I think, in some cases, write for yourself. And so there are, there are posts that I've written that are really just for me. Even, even if I only have 100 readers for that particular post, there are posts that I want to put out there. Uh, and there are some posts that I've put out that are like collections of resources that I think are really valuable that get next to no response. I mean, li- I mean literally, you know, yeah. one to five comments. And these are posts that take 100 times longer to write than some of the emotional outpourings that get 700 comments. Uh, well, well, you know, people, a little bit of it is a supply and demand function. So you're actually not incredibly personally revealing on your website. You know, even though you're very personal, like you discuss every way you experiment on your body, uh, you, you know, you, dis- you discuss how you learn, you know, the languages, how you learn to be a chef, you d- discuss the ba- brain quick and stuff in your books. Um, but I'm sure through all of this process, let's say TV or selling the business or some part of this process, you probably got depressed at some point. And you know what? I want to read about when Tim Ferriss got depressed and how he got over it. Oh, definitely. And actually, one of the posts that I put up that I expected to get a decent response that just received an insanely overwhelming response that you might find entertaining is, uh, is actually exactly about this. It's called uh, productivity, in quotation marks, productivity tricks for the neurotic, manic, depressive, and crazy, and then in parentheses, like me. And it has almost 800 comments, and it's, a, it's about a really dark period that I went through, uh, not, not well, so all too. What, what was going on? Uh, well, uh, let's see, I'd have to, it's been a while since this published. This was sort of the end of 2013, November that it came out and, and I sat on the post for months. I actually kind of put it together and then I was too self-conscious, too self-conscious to publish it. Uh, until but you I, know, you know, the advice I gave Kamal when he wrote, um, love yourself, uh, he was a little nervous about publishing it, you know, because it's yep. very, very revealing. And I said, you know, Kamal, I don't even hit publish on something unless I'm scared what people will think of me when, when I publish it. So, but, you know, to be fair, Kamal did, did think about it for a while before, before publishing it. But I know, and the reason I'm asking you about depression is because I know you then tweeted his book uh, shortly thereafter, after he published it. So I knew you must have been going through something. Oh, yeah. And I read the whole book. It's a great book. Uh, so the the quote that got me to publish this post, and this, this is in line with what you just said, but this is from Neil Gaiman, who's one of my favorite writers. Sandman is the, is the all-time best. Oh, my God. Sandman, American Gods. Uh, I mean, the list is so long. Yeah. The, Grave, the Graveyard Book is one of the, the best audiobooks I've ever heard in my life. He narrates it, and he's a, just a world-class narrator. Oh, I'll uh, pick that up. I haven't oh, listened to that. It's so good. It's, this is one of the few books ever of any genre, fiction or nonfiction, that as soon as I finished the audiobook, I was tempted to just go right back to the beginning and listen to the whole thing again. Wow. Um, 
So Neil Gaiman, here's a quote. Quote, the moment that you feel that just possibly you're walking down the street naked, exposing too much of your heart and your mind and what exists on the inside, showing too much of yourself, that's the moment you may be starting to get it right. End quote. That's and, a great quote. And uh, basically, I went through a point, this was last summer, I guess, uh, where I had a dozen friends or so come over for my birthday. I was on the East Coast, and I stayed in bed on the very last day when I knew people were leaving. I stayed in bed until the very last point, like basically my head under the covers, literally hitting snooze and whatever, because I was afraid of being alone, and I felt very lonely, and I was just having all these these different facets of self-doubt. And the, the I wanted to put a post together talking about this because I think it's dangerous uh, for people to look at their sort of virtual role models, whether they view them as successful people or heroes or whatever it might be. And uh, because of the selection bias of the content that these people put out, to assume that they don't have, quote, normal people problems, if that makes sense. And I wanted to just take people through like a bunch of the horribly inefficient behaviors that I have, as well as just uh, walk them through a handful of these deep-rooted insecurities and horrible behaviors that I have trouble managing, uh, and to point out that despite that and all of that seemingly dysfunctional stuff, I'm able to achieve like bullet, 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 right? So it's not that I'm able to do seemingly big things because I've eradicated all of these foibles and human, very human weaknesses, it's, bec- it's, it's despite them. Uh, uh, maybe on some level because of them, I don't know. But uh, that, that was the entire point, the, 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 the point of the post. And I don't want it's to, a, it's a decently long post, so I, I don't want to uh, bore everybody by going through it kind of paragraph by pa- paragraph. But that's, that's the basic idea. And if, if people search my name and neurotic and crazy, <laughs> it'll probably pop right up. Well, well, let's also talk about like more recently then with TV is a lot of work and you shot, I don't know, how many episodes did you, did you shoot already that are in the can? Thir- 13 episodes, excluding all the promotional stuff, which is and, much more than that. And I, I, you know, the episode that I saw was a half hour, but that must have been 200 hours worth of work or oh, more. E- e- easily. Uh, that was a very intense period completely not financially driven because TV pays horribly. Uh, it was 12 to 16 hour days. That's not what, an exaggeration. What does, what does it pay? Like what they, did they give you a budget for the show uh, and you take like uh, yeah, a producer's fee? Yeah. Uh, I, I was an executive producer and a host. Can't get into the numbers cause I'd be in breach of contract, but it's, it's not much. I'll just put it that way. It, it, it was one of the, from an opportunity cost standpoint, <laughs> If, if we're looking at it, at it that way, it was, it was not a good decision, but it wasn't a financial decision for me. I wanted to, before I'm in a wheelchair, capture some of these things on camera uh, so that people can learn from them, hopefully. Uh, the, the point being, it was for each episode that is 21 and a half minutes, right? It's a 30-minute TV show. Subtract the commercial time, 21 and a half minutes, roughly 22 minutes. It was five to six days of 12 to 16-hour days. Uh, for every episode. And that, keep in mind, is just the production. That's excluding the reviews of the rough cut and the, all the notes and refinement, all the reviews of the fine cut, all of the refinement and changes and everything. Sending screen flows, sending notes, sending story, sort of story points that I want to make sure are included. 
graphics feedback, screenshots with diagrams. I mean, all of that stuff. It, it was a tremendous amount of work, and um, I'm very honestly, happy. Honestly, Tim, I, I don't know why you did it. Actually, like I, I've shot a pilot before for for HBO. It is too much work. TV TV is in, well. I'll, I'll tell you what. I wanted to do it because I'd I'd wondered what it would be like for years and years and years. And you know, now I know. I mean, now I know. And I worked with a, a fantastic team. I mean, in the field. These people were not uh, uh, anything less than than A grade. I mean, we're talking 0.0, they do all of Anthony Bourdain's stuff. They are really lean. They're really fast. They're really, really good. And even if you are working with the best people, it is a tremendous amount of time. And what I would say is uh, I'm glad I did it. I wouldn't do it the same way in a second season. If I were to do it again, I'll just say that. If I were to do it again, what would I do differently? What I would do differently is instead of doing 13, uh, and I should, I should also mention, reality TV in, in the sort of conventional sense does not take this much time because the whole thing is scripted. Uh, for all these other shows like you know the Kardashians or whatever, it's all scripted. It is a scripted show. Uh, it's not reality. It's not spontaneous. If you get a like a phone call on camera, do you realize the probability of that happening naturally? They'd have to film 24 hours a day. It's all scripted. If you see a bunch of people standing in the kitchen having a debate and like one person's always stirring some random <laughs> it's scripted. <laughs> uh, but, and you had a lot of uh, – it looked like you had a lot of cameras on you. Like they, 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 they piled a lot of cameras into your room. They had two camera guys uh, for each episode, two DPs, who were trained to do the dance – of crossing in that way without getting uh, each other in their respective shots. It's actually really tough. It's something that ZPZ is very famous for. It's super hard to pull off. Um, but the point being, uh, we were capturing that much footage because we were trying to do things spontaneously and make it true to life, which it was. It was very verite, but really time consuming. Um, what I'd do differently if I were to do it again is I would make the show at least twice as long. So it'd be an hour long. And I would uh, space out the production so we weren't on a, a crash schedule. I mean, literally, it was 13 episodes, one after the other, after the other, after the other, after the other, flying all over the United States. It was very exhausting. If I were to do it again, I would do half as many, and I would make them an hour long. And I would make it six days of shooting with at least two days of no cameras, just me practicing stuff. And... Uh, that that's generally how I would approach it. Um, were were you be, ever scared that an episode would fail? For instance, like let's just take the drumming one that you just wouldn't learn how to drum well enough to play for Foreigner. Oh yeah, definitely. And actually, that's an important component of the show. I don't want it to be the Tim Ferriss highlight reel. I want I want all the nervous breakdowns and everything to be in there. So there were episodes that didn't work out. Um, <laughs> like what? what? Can you say um, which I, one? I'm not going to spoil the punchline. Okay. I'm going to wait. But there were episodes that did not work out. There were episodes where I got really badly injured. Also, um, this this is intended to be true to life and show people if you're going to question the impossible, you're not always going to come out looking like a superhero. I mean, there are <laughs> cases where it's like, oh, holy. Like that limiter is actually very, very real. <laughs> God, I, I can't, I can't wait to watch the poker one. Can we, can we buy the poker one from Turner and just release it? <laughs> I'll call Turner I'll, myself. I'll keep, I'll keep you posted, man. I'm working on it right now, so I appreciate that. I'll, I'll let you know what's, what's possible. I'm, uh, I, I'm on top of it. So, so, so now though that it's 
it's not quite hiatus, but you're in the kind of like deal hell with them. This lets you, this freed you up to do the podcast. Like now you've just started this podcast. Yeah. Um, I am doing, I, I'm having so much fun with the podcast. Podcasts and, are great, by the way. Yeah. I, I, I'm having so much fun, but uh, it's, it's, it's on top of that proven to be a godsend because I'm actually not in any kind of negotiation hell with with the Turner guys because they want in many ways the same outcome that I do. Uh, so it's just a matter of taking a lot of sort of big company stuff and uh, navigating it to get to that end point. So I'm confident that something will be figured out. Um, you know, talk to me in a month or two and I'll have a better better idea. But the the podcast has just reminded me of how good it feels to have complete dictatorial creative control. <laughs> yeah. Just I don't think you should ever give that up again. Like even yeah, if you did another TV show, just sell it off your site again, Louis yeah, C.K. Yeah. style. No, exactly. I mean, it's, it's just, I've realized that I, I, I love having creative input from other people. I love working with other people. Uh, it's very difficult for me to not have final say in all things creative. <laughs> It's just – it's really, really tough uh, because I feel like there is no one on the planet who knows my audience better than I do. I know them so well. I spend all day, every day on some level thinking about them because they are me. I am them. I mean it's like I've been in this for so long. I just – I just – I'm not always right but I got to tell you if someone's going to guess, if someone's going to gamble, I'm the right person for my audience. And I just love that with the podcast, I have – absolute 100% decision making power to test anything I want. You know, if I want to test a new mic and it turns out shitty, like shame on me, but you know what? What the f that's what this format is for. And I've been testing all sorts of locations and mics and audio and everything and it's been so much fun. Uh and as long as I'm having fun, the podcast will find an audience. Will it will it will it be number 1 on iTunes? I mean it was when it first came out. I mean it's still top 10 or 15 or whatever. Will it stay there? I don't know. But will it find an audience as long as I'm having fun and I'm enjoying the creative process? It will. And well, I can guarantee you this. It's going to have a bigger audience than, you know, Headline News 2 or whatever because cable just has a smaller audience than the podcast world at this point. Yeah, no, I mean it's I think that particularly for my audience it's about it's about digital and it's about on demand and binge capability not scheduled watching. Uh, I I just really feel like that is how I consume content and when in doubt <laughs> create what you would want to see yourself <laughs> and distribute it the way you would want to consume it yourself, right? It's kind of so, simple. So so it's interesting because I sort of feel like your career, uh, you know, kind of forked off probably in some ways similar to mine, although, you know, you've had such amazing successes. But I have this writing career. I write these books. I do this podcast. And I'm also on the boards of several companies, including a public company. I'm an advisor, an investor in many companies, an angel investor. You've also had this fork where uh, because people viewed you, I'm assuming, as an authentic voice that they could trust and they loved your content, people started hiring or bringing on you as an advisor or an investor. Like, So you're an advisor to Twitter, to Uber. And my assumption is this, without really specifying exact numbers, my assumption is this is actually really the, the bread and the butter, although you've done well with, with everything else. How did you get involved with like Twitter? 
Yeah, Twitter was uh, was an investment that was 2009, and uh, Twitter the Twitter story. Well, there are different ways that I get involved with companies, uh, and there are different things I do with companies. And if people want to see my portfolio, uh, they can get a very good look at pretty much everything by going to just angel.co. It's angelist angel.co forward slash tim, and you can see all of my stuff. And in fact, you can even invest in some of the deals that I do through their syndicate. But the, the way I got in, in touch with Twitter was living in Silicon Valley, building the relationships old, over time with lots of close friends that I have who, ha, who are very often in tech. And at one point being told of this opportunity to buy Twitter stock from an employee who was leaving and wanted to buy a house. And it really came down to sort of the reputational capital that I built and I was asked if I would like to buy some of the stock and of course I said yes or I shouldn't say of course because it wasn't actually clear there were a lot of people who felt that Twitter was very very overvalued at that point in time and uh, I looked at that investment as marketing budget as opposed to a a purely financial investment Uh, by being associated with Twitter uh, there was a, there was a reputational gain to be had because access was very very hard and uh, it just so happened that Twitter despite any of the the recent challenges they've had just since the last lockup expired has been a huge success for me. And uh, I'm still very, very confident in the platform. Other ways that I've connected with companies would include uh, through my followers and my readers. So I will occasionally poll readers. Uh, in one case, I polled my readers for updating resources in the four-hour work week prior to the 2009 uh, expanded and updated launch. And that is how I identified Shopify as, a, as an extremely fast-growing, promising, and elegant uh, e-commerce solution for people who wanted to get online quickly. And I connected through that chatter via social media with the CEO, uh, Toby, and then we connected in person at a speaking event, and I became an advisor. Uh, and the same exact thing happened with Evernote, in fact, uh, both in the same year, 2009. You know, this, this is, these are awesome examples because people often ask, how do you monetize a blog? And the worst answer is advertising. The best answer is building an authentic voice that then allows you to communicate with your audience and find opportunities like this. That is the way you monetize a blog. Yeah, definitely. And if you're in a rush to do it, it's not going to work. Uh, you can't uh, you can't right. run out run out and make people feel like pay for play hired guns in a transactional way. You have to build legitimate relationships uh, with people to explore areas that you want to explore. And I think that you that doesn't mean it has to take ten years. Uh, I think you've done an incredible job of building uh, a, a diehard. Uh, reader base with the content that you put out. I mean, I've been very, very impressed with, with how well you've done Thank that. You. Oh my God. It's I really, I mean, one of the most outstanding examples and it's, it's, I have to say it's worked really well for me in terms of me finding opportunities similar to, to those. Uh, and it, it also reminds me of, um, the way you communicate with the, the readers. It reminded me of uh, a few years ago, Chris Saka made a tweet. Uh, it was like three in the morning and he basically tweeted, Who's programming software right now, and what are you working on? And people who responded, he considered investing. And I don't know if he invested in any of them, but that was like an interesting way to find out who's that intense working, you know, at three in the morning on a software product. Oh yeah, and and Chris Saka is one of the 
easily, in my mind, one of the smartest tech investors in the world today. I mean, I, I, I absolutely put him in the top 10, maybe top five that I've ever met. I mean, he's a, he's a brilliant guy and he actually has taught me a lot about uh, how these things work. Uh, he's, he's also hilarious to follow on Twitter. So Chris Saka, S-A-C-C-A. I think it's just at Saka. Uh, but and, the, and the, what, I, what have you learned I, from him? Because he, he learned a lot from Ron Conway, who's, uh, that he admits in a letter that he who's one of the most successful angel investors ever. Yeah, I I mean, it, we could go on for a long time with what I've learned from from Chris, but you know, I'd say, for, let me take a step back and, and mention one more thing: monetizing the blog, because this is something that comes out all the time. I just want to emphasize to people, monetizing is money is an intermediate; it is wampum, right? It is something that you trade for possessions, experience access to interesting people or resources, you don't need to have money as that intermediate necessarily. So my blog is is interesting for me as a learning tool. For me, I learn a ton from my readers, but also because I can oftentimes get access to people and things I would otherwise not be able to access even with money. And uh, that is why monetizing the blog, squeezing every last dollar and cent out of that traffic is not my highest priority. I just think it's important for people to keep that in mind. That's incredibly important. And I always view money as a side effect. Like when when you take medicine, you're looking for completely other things. And just by accident, you're going to have some side effects to it. And that's the, the, the only way to monetize a blog is to is to not monetize it, to almost delay gratification as much as possible while you build up authenticity, trust, and so on uh, in yeah, the process. Absolutely. And so co- coming back to Chris, uh, what, I've, what I've learned from Chris is I, I, there's, there's such a long list of stuff, but I, the, I think the most important, arguably the most important, is the people you invest in. And you're really investing in people, not ideas, because ideas are a dime a dozen. It, that's and actually change. Big. Yeah, that's and that's even being generous. I mean, I, I anyone can come up with great ideas. Uh, it's the implementation that's important. So if you're betting on a team or CEO, let's get even more specific. Like they they should pass two types of tests. And I, I I don't want to. I'm pretty sure that Chris mentioned at least one of these to me. But this is the general gist, at least. You know, the the kind of the beer test and the mall test. What are these? The beer test is would you would you invite them out to have beers? Like, would you actually want to spend two to three hours with them, hanging out, shooting the talking? Uh, Would you find that at least you know stimulating? Would you do it on a somewhat regular basis? If the answer is no, given the speculative nature of startups, let's just say that you invest in ten founders, you where you think the company is 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 very. uh, has great prospects, but none of them pass the beer test. But they're really like hard-hitting, driven CEOs. Well, if nine out of ten of them fail, that means if you're splitting your time across those ten, nine tenths of your time is going to be spent with people you dislike. <laughs> right, and, <laughs> and it's going to be a very unpleasant time because when a business is failing, that's when you see someone's true colors. So you better be yeah. able to be comfortable with them. Exactly. So there's the beer test. Uh, and then there is the the mall test, which is very closely related. So that is like if you're walking around at the mall uh, and this person is sort of walking the other way on, let's say, the opposite side of the mall. So you're on the same level, right? So you're not like 10 feet away, but you're close enough to, to make eye contact. You know, do you, number one, like run over and be like, oh, my God, hey, what's up? How are you doing? And like actively engage. Uh, number two, do you kind of like give them like the wave and head nod and keep moving? 
or do you cover your face because you don't want to interact with them? And if it's anything other than number one, you really shouldn't do it. And it's, it's, it's closely related. Uh, so does this work all the time? No. But does it prevent you from wasting your life on people you should not spend all of your time with? Yes. And you, you don't have to, coming back to that sort of you know, $15 billion plus companies per year uh, idea, you don't need to take every good company. You don't need to get involved with every good opportunity. You just need really a handful of good bets. And you can wait. You can afford to wait for those bets. You can afford to wait for the confluence of great opportunity, great market, innovative product, and cool people. Like you, you, you can actually wait for it. And if you can't wait for it, it means that you're like banking on angel investing to pay your mortgage, which you shouldn't in the first place. Right. Very, that's a very important lesson, too. So one final question. And Tim, I, I really appreciate it. You've been so generous with your time. This has been a great podcast. Which areas, it, which kind of sectors do you look at as an investor right now that you think would sort of open up or, or where there's opportunity to, to be found? Yeah, and, then, and then, by the way, after this, I'm registering the three and a half hour work week uh, all over the place. You should, you should go for it. Uh, so so that, uh, my pleasure, of course. This is fun for me. Uh, in terms of sectors, I, I, this is a question I, I get a fair amount. Uh, there are some investors who uh, are, are what you might term thematic or sector investors. So they choose – they decide that Twitter is growing quickly uh, and, and anything that is a platform built on Twitter will ride that rising tide. So they want to invest in, say – Twitter API based companies or something like that, or they decide that wearables, you know, wearable tech is, is part of two growing and converging trends. Therefore I'm going to invest in wearable tech. Uh, I don't actually approach it that way. Uh, I, the way that I invest, so this is the only way I can really answer this question is I look for consumer facing products, which means I'm not doing enterprise software or anything like that. I'm looking for, for things that are consumer-facing, right? Something you could put in the New York Times in the style section or put on a billboard or put in a magazine. And consumer-facing products that have shown some traction, so they're, they're, they're showing uh, an, an organic or, or acquired rate of customer acquisition that shows me the product is, is finding some type of product market fit uh, where it's not a derivative product, ideally, so that means it's not, you know, this is Twitter for whatever, you know, albino cats, or this is Foursquare for dyslexics, or like uh, uh, the, the derivatives are uh, a dangerous place to play in, and it's not, it's not somewhere I can add a lot of value typically. And uh, there are some exceptions, uh, but then I, I look for companies that I could pitch to the New York Times. Now, that's not because I think the New York Times would actually do anything in terms of uh, sales impact. Uh, very frequently, it doesn't. But is it unique enough to form a story around? Not only that, but is it simple enough to explain that a journalist feels comfortable uh, explaining it in one or two sentences for a mass audience? And if they're demonstrating all these things, and of course, I could layer on all the things that I look for besides that, like Ideally, the founders had exits in the past and they know how to play this game, which includes, by the way, fundraising and managing investors and rounds and valuations and all that, you know, employee option pools and all this stuff that a lot of founders don't think about when they get into things. 
if if they check all those boxes, then I'll take a very serious look at it. And uh, then it comes down to other things like pricing. And uh, there's a great deal at the wrong price is a bad deal, right? A great company at the wrong price is a bad deal. And uh, a, a a a whereas you know, great company at a at a conservative price, well, you know that that could be incredible. And there are opportunities on the secondary market. For instance, if if something's if a co-founder is distressed, and then you have a Warren Buffett type opportunity where you can buy something at sort of less than book or intrinsic value. Uh, but I'm I'm getting off into the weeds a little bit. Uh, venture hacks for those people interested in angel investing. Venturehacks.com is a great site. A lot of resources there, and AngelList yes. also itself has is a great place to see where people are connected and thematically or otherwise how investors invest. So you could look at my investments and kind of deduce how I choose my investments. You could look at some of these other amazing investors, you know, Mark Andreessen or Bill Gurley or whatnot, and you could sort of deduce how they invest. That's really true. You could basically apply the techniques that you've described in your books to sort of deconstruct uh, successful investing. Uh, it's never been easier. Absolutely. Um, I, I agree with that. So again, Tim, thanks so much. Again, I, I really think throughout all of your career, everything that's in there, you've explored, you know, what's possible versus the imaginary probable. And uh, I, I, this podcast was great. So thanks very much. Yeah, my pleasure entirely. Uh, uh, anytime. And uh, I've been looking forward to this for, for weeks now. So thank you for hosting me. And yeah, me uh, and uh, yeah, two R's, two S's. There's another Tim Ferriss who's a, who's, a, who's a great writer, science guy actually, who lives like five miles away from me. So there's a lot of confusion. But I'm oh, I've got to remember that. I always get it confused. <laughs> yeah, I'm the Tim Ferriss with two R's and two S's. So people can uh, hope people chime in and, ch- and check out the podcast. And uh, happy to come back anytime. Okay, thanks a lot, Tim. I'll talk to you soon. All right, buddy. Thanks. Bye. Bye. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network at stansberryradio.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. 